If you've got a Bible with you, if you want to turn with me to John chapter 5. We're going to be in John chapter 5, and we're going to be reading actually the first 18 verses of John chapter 5 together this morning. There John tells us, he says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to them, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Then the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So as a pastor and a preacher, uh, one of the things I've become aware of is there are a couple of ways that people refer to people who do what I do, sometimes not positively. Um, Like there's a lot of lawyer jokes out there, there's a lot of pastor jokes too. One of my favorite derogatory terms for a preacher is a used car salesman. I don't know why, I just think it's hilarious. Now, uh, the reason I think people use this phrase to describe, this name to describe uh, a preacher is because what a used car salesman does is they take something that isn't worth much to you. It's not something that will actually be good for you. They take a piece of junk. They take a lemon. They take a car that you probably shouldn't buy. But because they're a good salesman, because they have the ability to sell anything to anyone much of the time, they can convince someone that it's exactly what they need. They make it sound great. They make it sound amazing. And you walk off the lot feeling like you just made the best, smartest decision of your life. Also, by the way, you had to make that decision right then. Because any good used car salesman knows uh, if, you, if, you, if, you, if they walk off that lot, they're gone forever, right? you got to close the deal before they leave. But the problem is you then get home and the car starts to break down eventually. And a used car salesman hopes simply that it will be long enough before the car starts to break down that you're not going to come back and too loudly get upset at them and, you know, let them have it. Uh, The reason people say this about pastors, about preachers much of the time, is because of this idea that you tell people one thing. You, you promise people something that you simply can't deliver, but all you're interested in doing is getting them to make some kind of a decision, and that's it. This comes up 
uh, a lot in my mind when we go through the Gospels, when we go through the ministry of Jesus. And the reason it does is because what we basically say, at least this is how I think it feels much of the time, is wouldn't you give anything if this could be what your life was like? Wouldn't you just open this book and read it? Read about the amazing, incredible things that happened to the people in it. And tell me you don't want that life because you can have that life today. And it comes at the low cost, the very easy low cost of everything. You just have to give your whole life. You have to, you know, die to yourself. And, uh, but if you do, what you'll get in return will be so much better. Anybody who knows anything knows this is a good deal and this is a decision that you should make today. But here's how it works. Then we start preaching through it and you go, all right, guys, here's how this is going to work. You all have to do all the stuff the disciples did, okay? So if they gave up something, you got to give it up. If they learned something, yeah, I got to learn that. If they stopped doing something, yeah, stop doing it because it's not good, right? And uh, no matter what, if it comes up, you got to deal with it. We're going to tell you you got to work on it. We're going to tell you you got to do it because that's your end of the bargain. Now, when the Jesus stuff comes up, yeah, it's going to get a little bit more fuzzy, okay? Uh, he doesn't really have to do all the stuff he did. Uh, you can't really expect him to, let's say, heal you if you get sick. You can't expect him to do something miraculous if you're in a situation and you have no control over it and life is falling apart around you. Uh, and as long as you understand that's how it works now, it's a little different than it was then, then uh, hopefully you'll, uh, you'll see this is still a great deal. And then it starts to sound like less and less of a good deal. Wait a second, why do I have to do everything those guys did, but Jesus doesn't have to do everything that he did? When we approach a passage that deals with a healing like this, um, as somebody who is often very skeptical of things, it's one of the things that I've come to realize is that many of us simply accept this and say, oh, well, you know, maybe it's because we haven't really done what the disciples are saying. We're not really dying to ourselves very much, so we're like, it's okay. I won't do my end. He doesn't do his end. I'll get into heaven. Maybe that's fine. But uh, we won't worry too much about it beyond that. But for many, I think the question is still there. Uh, why does it not work this way anymore? And if we're going to talk about healing and a healing that Jesus does that is incredibly miraculous, we have to understand exactly what he's doing here, and more importantly, why he's doing what he's doing. Because without a right understanding of this, it doesn't seem very balanced. In fact, it seems like we are supposed to keep up our end of the bargain, but he simply isn't supposed to keep up his. We read about Jesus approaching this man in John chapter 5. Now, this man was outside of a pool, and this pool was one that you would go to to feel physically better. So I think it's kind of like a hot tub, right? Uh, but more natural, I would assume. Uh, I don't think they had hot tubs back then. I honestly didn't research that, but I'm guessing they didn't. And uh, it's this pool that people would go in when they're, when they're feeling sore, sick, when they're not feeling well, and it would give them some temporary relief. And so not everybody there was as badly crippled as this man, uh, but he's simply the one that couldn't even get to the pool. He couldn't even get into it because he wasn't able to, and everyone else was faster and more, uh, more able than him probably. 
And so Jesus uh, sees this man at a pool that people know is a place for healing, and he approaches the man and he asks him the uh, most obvious question in the world. Uh, It says that when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Like I said, kind of an honest question, kind of an obvious question. Uh, Who in the world would say, no, I don't want to be healed? Well, one of the things that we have to understand is that any time that we look at the ministry of Jesus and he interacts with a person, someone had to make that interaction begin. Someone had to initiate that interaction. And as we break down this healing and we look at different aspects of it, we're going to kind of see why Jesus does these things he does and what we can tell from all the different healings that go on in Scripture. The first part of this, the first part of this account of this story begins with simply the approach, the approach that Jesus makes to this man. Jesus has come to where he is. He has reached out to the man and he's now even asking him, do you want to be healed? Now, this is very different from a lot of other interactions that happen where people themselves seek out Jesus. They hear about this guy, Jesus, and they go to where he is, go to great lengths, some of them. Uh, Some people will push their way through the crowd simply to touch the edge of his cloak because they believe that he's miraculous and he can heal them or do something for them. And, uh, and, and those people will ask things of Jesus. They're looking for healing. They're looking for answers. They're looking for truth. They're looking for something. Jesus changes a lot of lives over the years as he's doing ministry, and it either happens that this person will seek him out, asking him for healing, for truth, for forgiveness, for compassion, or he will approach them, and he'll offer them forgiveness, or healing, or truth, or he'll rebuke them for some sin that's in their life. And the interaction itself is dictated largely, it seems, by this very first step, the approach. Who came to who? Who was looking for what? That tells us everything about what's going to happen. To the people that come to Jesus, he usually ends up saying, either because of your faith, I'll do this good thing that you want, or he'll usually end up saying, now go and think about this thing again. Go and rethink why you're here with me, right? You kind of want the first one and not the second one. But people come to Jesus and they would ask him questions, they'd ask him for things, they would seek things, and sometimes he would say, here you go. And other times he'd be like, why don't you go away and think about this for a while? Because I don't think that you're really understanding the way the kingdom works, the way I work, or there's something in you that needs to change in order for you to really get this. Basically, you really need to rethink what you want here. To those people that Jesus seeks out, we see that it's all about how he approaches them. It's all about his approach to them. It's about what he intends to show them. And and they will in some way be transformed by his interaction with them, either the conversation or what he does. And this is exactly the same today. This is no different than today. There are those of us who would look at, maybe as a follower of Jesus, the way that came about, and we would say, I sought him out. I questioned, I doubted, I wondered, I needed healing, I needed intervention, I was at a point where my life was a mess, or I was at a point where life was great, and I just wanted it to be even better. I was at a point where I was out of control, and uh, and I wanted to feel more in control. I I was at a point where I wondered what's really going on behind the scenes of this world that I'm living in. For whatever reason, we feel, like when we look back, we go, I feel like I approached him, I sought him out. 
Now, maybe I approached him and I got what I was looking for, but in most cases, no, I would go ahead and say, in every single case, if we went approaching Jesus, we did not get what we expected. We didn't find exactly what we expected to find. And there are those of us who say, honestly, when I look back at what it looked like for me to come into contact with Jesus, it feels as though he pursued me. It feels as though he came to me. It feels as though through the circumstances of my life or through him coming to me, through other people and things that they did, it didn't feel like it was me. It felt like it was him. And regardless of how that went, again, Jesus was not what I expected. Or what he brought with him was not what I expected. Or the result of the interaction with him did not end up being what I expected that it would be. Someone has to cover the distance. I know this is very complicated. I was going to have a very complicated illustration and walk you guys through it, but it would take too long. Either we approach Jesus or Jesus approaches us. When Ellie and I were first married, something that we got very good at was fighting. We were really good at it. We spent, uh, we committed many nights. We made sure that we, it was something that we could do at all hours. Um, and, uh, and we were so good at it, in fact, we considered just being good at it for the rest of our relationship. But then we decided at one point, we probably shouldn't be so good at this. And uh, especially if there's going to be kids at some point in the picture. Um, but when we were first married and we were often getting into arguments, um, we lived in a two-story house. There was stairs in between these two floors. Again, I'm going to explain something that's obvious. That's how a two-story house works. And if we got in the argument on the bottom floor, at some point, someone would just go upstairs. That's it. It's over. And if we got in the argument on the top floor, at some point, somebody would just go downstairs. And that ended the argument. That's the nice thing about having stairs. That's just, that's it right there. If you don't, maybe you go outside. I don't know. Maybe you go get in the car and just sit there and yell. But we had stairs, and that made it easy. Usually, Ellie was the one walking away. Because, believe it or not, I don't really run out of words very easily. And I was usually on like point two of five or illustration three of seven, and she was like, see ya, you know? And uh, yeah, so uh, when this happened, the only way that there could ever be reconciliation between us was that someone had to walk the 10 miles that it felt like it was to get past that staircase again. Either I had to go to her, and it was not easy, or she had to come to me, and it was not easy. We never met in the middle. There was a landing. I don't think there was ever forgiveness and reconciliation right there in the middle. And sometimes it took a really long time for one of us to approach the other. But the only way that we could ever get past it, physically, was for one of us to say, I'm going to cover the distance, and I'm going to make the approach. And this is exactly what it is when we see Jesus in people, especially when there are these miraculous healings that happen. It's either that someone has said, I'm seeking him out and I will cover the distance, and everything about the interaction from there starts really with, with that thing, or it's Jesus saying, this guy doesn't know any idea who I am. They don't have any idea what's going on probably, and that's what happens in this instance. He comes to this man, and he asks him this question. Now, the thing that we start to recognize, though, about this man, as Jesus approaches him and starts to talk with him, as Jesus ultimately heals him, as the man responds when Pharisees come and start questioning him, what we see in this man is it tells us a lot about maybe why Jesus would have healed him in the first place. 
You see, when he asked this man, um, do you want to be healed? It's likely that the reason he was asking him this was because the man wasn't actually sure that he wanted to be healed. Now, as crazy as that sounds to you, okay, we have a tendency when we read Scripture, I think, to kind of project onto it, right, to think, how would I feel in that instance? And maybe you're like, I would want to be healed. Of course I would. Okay, now let me ask you something else. This man has been paralyzed for the majority of his life, probably mostly his entire life. Something happened, and he's been unable to walk. That has become who he is. That's become, in a large part, his identity, especially in a culture that doesn't have probably great social services. Have you ever met somebody who about 30 seconds into a conversation has to tell you all the things wrong with them? Has to tell you what their issues are, their sickness, the the disability, whatever it is. And, And you've probably known other people who have the very same things going on, and it doesn't come up quite that way. It's actually rather common for someone dealing with what this man is dealing with to allow it to become such a part of their life that the question is a serious one that Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? Uh, Rather than maybe the compassionate tone that we would think, you know, do you want to be healed? The question probably is more, do you want to be healed? To which the man has to stop and think. Because as he sits there each day, wishing that he could get up and get into that pool, so that he could receive some relief. He also watches people walk by him in this very busy area each day, carrying their loads, physically laboring, working, doing their job. Wondering, which would I prefer, really? Something else that we see about this man is uh, because being healed ultimately means a changed life. And we're not sure if this man wants a changed life if he wants something now completely new and different, if this is how he's lived up to this point. Something else we see about this guy, and, and actually most, most people who have studied this passage would agree with this pretty quickly, he doesn't actually seem like a very nice person. Uh, Jesus heals him, and it says he walks away. It doesn't say he dances away. He runs out. He's praising God, praising Jesus, proclaiming things to everybody. It says he walks away, and because that's just totally unacceptable on the Sabbath, the Pharisees start to question him. They say, uh, why are you doing this? And the first thing he does is sell out the person who healed him. He doesn't even say, I was healed today. He doesn't say, get out of my way. I don't care. He doesn't say, throw me in jail for breaking the law because I can walk. Praise God. Praise Jesus. He says, the man who healed me told me to do this. He says, the man who healed me told me to take my bed and to walk away with it. And, and, and then they go, who healed you? And he goes, I, oh, yeah, I didn't get his name. I don't know. And he realizes he didn't know who he was. And then he sees Jesus again. Jesus says, good, look, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're better. After he says, get up and take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. And now that day was the Sabbath and these Pharisees were upset. And he would go back and he would see Jesus again in the temple. And Jesus would say, see, you're well. And, uh, and now when the guy sees who he is, sees that his name is Jesus, he again goes and finds the Pharisees. And he says, Jesus, Jesus is the guy. The guy that you were mad for. See, I told you it wasn't me, it was him. This does not seem like a very great guy to me. There's lots of other examples of Jesus doing miraculous things in people's lives and a tremendous amount of gratefulness, a different kind of a response, and we don't really see it here with him. 
And one of the things that we see in that, like we see in any healing that Jesus does, is it tells us about why he heals. There's the approach, there's Jesus coming to him or him coming to him, and then there's the healing itself. And what we see in it is this. We see that there is nothing that this man does before, during, or after that actually deserves a healing. There's nothing. He doesn't have faith. He doesn't respond by devoting his entire life to Jesus right then and there and following him. We don't see anything in the way this man acts that says, that's why Jesus healed that guy. And why is that important to us? Because we all want healing. And we all want to know that whatever it takes to have Jesus come to you and ask you that question, we want to be able to do that thing. Many of us think, okay, good, if I live like maybe the disciples do, if I do all the stuff Ed says the people did, then Jesus will do all the stuff it says that Jesus did. And so we look at this guy and we say, what did that guy do? He was crippled and he walked away and ratted Jesus out twice. That's pretty much it. So if you do that, does that mean that you'll get healed? That's probably not the point here. And we see in Scripture that there are times when people's physical, uh, their, their physical limitation or illness, their disability actually comes, it seems, as some kind of a result from like sin in their life. And then we also see instances when Jesus very clearly says, this has nothing to do with anything going on in this person's life. Now, in, in the Jewish culture especially, they had a very simple understanding of sickness and suffering. They believed that if, you, that if you were sick, if you were suffering, if you were disabled, you probably did something to deserve it. This is why Job's friends come to him and say, like, what have you done? Whatever sins in your life that's causing this to happen, you need to get rid of it right now. We, we give those guys a really, um, a really hard time. We think, what kind of friends would say that? Well, they're pretty good friends, actually, because they're literally trying to say whatever they can think of. And what they can think of is what everyone has taught them growing up as Jewish people, which is... Hey, man, if this something's going on here, then obviously he's blown it because that's how it works. And Jesus does come and he does say these disabilities, these sicknesses, these problems are not always the result of some horrible thing in a person's life and anything that this guy does. But the truth is that there is simply not a hard and fast rule that Jesus shows us that connects healing with, with faith with maturity, with love, with any kind of virtue, with any level of self-sacrifice, or with any degree of discipleship. There is no rule that we're given in Scripture that says, if you do this, if you act this way, if you live this way, he will miraculously intervene in the circumstances of your life, and he will save you from the suffering and the pain that's going on. And what comes after the healing is this, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. He's saying, see, this isn't just like getting in the warm water and feeling better for a little while then going back to being sick. See, you are well. You're really actually better now. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. He's not saying to the man, you sinned before and that's why you were sick, that's why you couldn't walk, so don't sin anymore because you don't want to get punished anymore, because that's not the reason why people suffer all the time. That's not the reason why these things would necessarily happen to people. What Jesus is doing, what he's giving this man is a warning, and this warning is incredibly important. After the healing comes the warning, and the warning is this. 
do not sin because spiritual sickness and death is far, far worse than anything that you've already experienced. Can you imagine being someone who has lived uh, like, like this many years, more than 30 years of their life, not being able to walk and to experience healing and then to, then, and then to think about going back to being sick again? If you've been sick, if you've been disabled, if you've been uh, uh, unable to do something physically that completely affected your life and then you got better, the thought of going back is usually pretty terrifying. And for many that I've talked with, it's the worst thing that they could think of. Now imagine Jesus saying, there's worse things that can happen. There's worse things that can happen to you and in your life than that disability that you just suffered from. Of all the people to tell that to, He's not telling it to somebody whose life is going well. He's telling it to somebody who knows exactly what it is to really suffer day in and day out to where your identity is probably shaped by that thing. And he says to him that sin will lead to much worse than what you've already experienced. The effects of sin in this man's life would be worse than being crippled. And so the question is very, very simple. Do we actually believe this? Do, does, does any of, do any of us actually believe that sin in our lives is worse than being physically disabled, than being a person who is dying, than being in a traumatic situation that involves ongoing suffering that we have no control over whatsoever? Do we really believe that sin is worse than that? that the things that we do lead to wreckage that is worse than that, or that there's something that even transcends sin as individual decisions and actions that mess up our lives, that it's this bigger thing that means that like one day I'll experience a kind of death that is exponentially worse than just physical death because of sin. Because this is what Jesus is saying to the man. Do I believe that spiritual death is a more pressing danger than physical death? Do I believe that spiritual slavery is more dangerous than physical slavery? Do I believe that spiritual sickness is more dangerous than physical sickness? Which of those things do I fear more? Which of those things am I more cautious of? You see, sin, uh, when Jesus talks about it, he's not just talking about, you know, don't do bad things. He's not talking about making bad decisions. He's not talking about making a couple of bad choices and trying to change your behavior and be a better person. He's not talking about sins. He's talking about sin. And there's something deeper about sin. There's something deeper within us. We read about it in Matthew where he's talking to his disciples and these religious leaders and he says, hey, guys, it's not actually uh, just the things that you put in your body that, that make your body impure, but he says it's the things that come out of your body. Peter says to him after he says this, explain this parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. 
He's describing sin as being something that exists in here and things come out of it. That like a river has a source and it flows from that source, that our actions and our choices and decisions are flowing from our hearts. And he talks about sin like the fact that the heart is what defiles a person. So when when he says you should be careful of this thing, you should be cautious of this thing, this is the thing you should really be worrying about and worried about. It's what's going on in here the state that you're in, and whether you're sick or whether you're healthy, there. The Bible tells us that, um, that there is an enemy that is seeking to devour us. It's like, a, it's like a lion. It's like waiting to devour us. One of the other things that Ellie and I used to do when we were first married, because we were so good at fighting, is we would go camping. Because that made sense. And uh, we went camping, and we thought it would be fun to go in, like, really remote areas to camp. Um, and so we, we, it seemed like a great idea until it got dark, and then it was just terrifying. And it was the two of us in this tent, which is basically you've made yourself as, you know, as completely, like, incapable of defending yourself and aware of your surroundings as possible when you're in a dark tent in the woods. No lights, nothing. And, uh, you know, every sound that we would hear, you know, uh, Ellie would get freaked out, um, and uh, and at one point we were like laying there, and her arm was under like under my pillow, and her hand was sticking out the other side, and she like moved her hand a little bit, and it made a noise, and she was like, "What was that?" <laughs> that happened. And one time, a couple days into the camping trip, there really was like something outside of our tent. Uh, We heard some noise, and it was an animal, and we don't know what it was, and we couldn't really even tell how big it was. And we're in there, we're totally defenseless. Uh, You 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 like you have a light on sometimes, so you're like you're like beaming out to the rest of the forest. This glowing like tent, right? Like come come eat whatever's in here, right? (laughs) If you're the comedian who says it's like a sleeping bag in 10, it's like a burrito, right? You're like, made yourself like a burrito. So that's good, right? Can't do anything at all. And we hear this animal out there and we're just praying that it's like a raccoon or maybe like a puppy that just got lost and is looking for a new home, uh, like, a, like a red panda. I'd take a red panda, obviously. Um, and not some kind of a bear or something much more ferocious that could come and eat us alive because we're completely defenseless. Uh, and then in the morning, we went outside and it was like a raccoon or something that ate all of our food because we didn't know what we were doing. And we got in a fight about it, I'm sure. This idea, when you're out in the wilderness, when you're like out in the wild, all of a sudden you become aware that there are these things that could come and eat you and devour you. But then you go back to your regular life and it's not something you really have to worry about. If you hear a noise outside, you don't freak out about that. Uh, You know, probably, I guess, I don't know. We have the very same problem where we're essentially living uh, in this place, in this way in which there is this enemy that's seeking to devour us, that that knows that there is this sinful tendency within us and is seeking to capitalize on that thing, to, to, uh, to lead us to things like temptation. And as that stuff exists, we're supposed to be very, very aware of it. Like, first and foremost, just be aware that that's going on. Be aware of the kind of danger that is caused by that. Be aware of it like you would be of a wild animal that is seeking to devour you, because that's exactly what he's seeking to do, is to destroy you. And we think, no, 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 when I think of what's seeking to devour me, I think of all of those things that I have no control over that Jesus fixed in people's lives. I think about the, the sickness. I think about the pain. I think about the suffering. 
And Jesus is warning this man. And he's saying to him, do not sin because what will happen in your life as a result of it will be far worse than what you've already experienced being crippled. And there's a point to this healing. And the point to this healing is actually the same point to every healing. It's the same point of every miraculous sign and wonder that Jesus does. And there's a lot of other things that we can see and learn about who Jesus is by the way he goes about miraculously doing things in people's lives. But the main point in every single thing that Jesus does, including this, every single miraculous healing intervention that Jesus does in a life is simply this. The point is that the forgiveness of sin is far, far greater than healing physically the pain and suffering that's going on in our lives. That he can heal us physically, but he can heal us spiritually. And that one is way, way more important because it's also way harder to do. Now, when given a choice, the majority of us would hands down take physical healing, would take miracles in the circumstances of our life over spiritual healing, over the forgiveness even of sins. That when the phone call comes with a diagnosis that we don't want to hear, and the follow-up appointment leads to more diagnoses that we don't want to hear, that when the ultrasound comes back and it's not what we wanted it to be, That when the money runs out and we don't know where it will come from next, that when the house goes away and we don't know where we'll live next, that when the child, we don't know how they'll come back, that when the relationship ends and we feel like there honestly is nothing we can do to restore it or to keep it going, that when we begin to lose the ability to physically do things and we have no way of reversing that, that when in those situations... Can we say that spiritual death, that the forgiveness of sin is more important than God changing those things that we cannot control? This is fundamentally a huge struggle that we have as we live in the flesh. That we are consumed by the very things going on physically in our lives right in front of us in this world. And we elevate those things. We, it's very hard to see past those things and to actually believe that the spiritual stuff is more important. And this is what Jesus did with every miracle, with every healing, with every intervention. The point of it was, this shows you that I have authority from God. And people would say it. If the message got across, they would say, I can see you have authority from God. This showed that he had authority from God. And then... He used that to say, I can forgive sins. He would even say in Scripture, when another man in, in Matthew is brought in with his, from his friends who's paralyzed, and the man is healed, and he says, get up and walk. Jesus says, what's easier for me to say? Get up and walk or that your sins are forgiven. We're like, uh, your sins are forgiven. That's way easier for you to say because, you know, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a scalper selling tickets outside of a game. It's like you buy the tickets and you go, I hope they work, you know? And then you get up and you're like, do they work? Oh, that's like Jesus says, hey, I forgive your sins. Okay, great. I'll know when I get there, you know? Hey, were these good? Are these any good? Is that a thing, God? No, sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. Shoot, 
Well, I guess that was easy to say. I forgive sins. So he did things to show us that he had authority, to show us that he was from God. He did miraculous, amazing things. But we look at those things and we think, so if I know Jesus and if Jesus is a part of my life, if I'm following Jesus, if I give of myself to Jesus the way the disciples did, then why won't he do these things in my life as predictably as he did in the lives of the people he interacted with? Well, there was a huge difference between the people that he encountered when he was showing the world he had authority and even his own disciples. Jesus did not fix everything that happened in their lives. He did not reverse everything that happened in their lives. Now, Jesus does still heal miraculously. He intervenes miraculously. We see that in the lives of people in the church constantly. But the point is that sin is killing us and that he can do the thing that no one else can do that is impossible. And the most impossible thing, not only can he do, but we can guarantee and bet our lives on it. That if we repent, we will be forgiven. That if we have faith and believe in him, we will be saved. We will be a part of the kingdom of God. 100% of the time, no matter who approaches who, it will always work out that way. And it's the much more important one. And this isn't a bait and switch. It isn't used car sales. Jesus' message is always the same to us. He says, I offer the ability to conquer death and to have new life. I have overcome the spiritual death. That's the one to really be afraid of. I mean, we spend our lives being afraid of physical death. We spend our lives trying to avoid it at all cost. And while we're at it, trying to avoid all the suffering that can come with life as well. And, and, and we want to know that God looks at those things and wants to, avoid, wants to help us avoid them as much as we do. And God says, my eyes are on the significantly more important thing, which is your eternity and your status with me. Which is this much more destructive thing in your life, sin, not the sickness. I'm worried about being sick. I'm not worried about sin in that way. Because I feel like I can control sin even though I really can't. Because I feel like if you said to me, that sin is going to kill you unless you stop doing it, I'd be like, all right, then I'll stop doing it. Believe me, I will. But this other thing that they said is going to kill me, that there's nothing I can do about it. I would give anything to just have some control over it. That's what I want more than anything. That's not actually the way it works. And I think one of the biggest struggles of any Christian today is having faith that is more about avoiding pain and suffering and finding comfort rather than having a faith that looks to another reality altogether. It is so hard for us to not have a faith that is more about finding relief from suffering, finding a way to hope that, that, that God can intervene in, in the situations that we can't control, that having a faith that is still ultimately about this life, that isn't about the life that is to come. And we are told again and again and again, that there is much more than just what we're feeling and experiencing here. And it's one of the hardest things. Many Christians, many churches, even many leaders in the church are more about this life and the quality of this life than they are about eternal life in the kingdom. And many of us have to admit, yeah, I'm right there in the same place. I want to know Jesus is going to fix things here. And Jesus is saying, I guarantee I will fix things there. And it's more important. 
And because what Jesus is promising is so bold by saying that he can forgive sins, that he is of God, that he is God, it offends the religious people of the time. And we begin to see this opposition to what he's saying. Because, of course, there would be opposition. Because, of course, the enemy would bring opposition. And, of course, it would come from religious people. It says here, we read on, that because they found out that Jesus had done this on the Sabbath, they began to plan on persecuting him and persecuting him. Persecuting Jesus isn't just randomly yelling at him and throwing some rocks at him and saying bad things about him behind his back. Persecution is to systematically organize a program to oppress someone, to harass someone. This is they get together and they put a ton of thought and they're very intentional about how are we going to harass Jesus? How are we going to oppress Jesus? How are we going to make sure that this guy's ministry can't happen going forward? And it starts with these guys in Jerusalem, the head of the church. And why are they so mad? They're mad because a guy moved his bed on the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath was their day. I mean, this was their day to shine. They're the religious leaders. And they've done this very helpful thing, which is they've taken the law to have a day of rest, and they've added a million stipulations to it just to make sure that we all know exactly what rest looks like. And doesn't that sound incredibly restful, right? Because these guys are, what, the experts on rest? If you think about restful, do you think Pharisee? Do you think religious people? Do you associate religious people with the word rest? No. When we think of the Pharisees in the Bible, do we think rest? They were experts on it. They were all over everybody's case about it. You couldn't even move a bed. They knew what they were talking about. And the truth is that their desire to control had completely robbed this thing of its actual spirit and heart, which was that it genuinely be a time of rest. Yesterday, my kids and I planted vegetables in our garden for like two hours. It's the most restful thing I did all week. Most rest. I've got just the right amount. I'm not crazy, okay? This is a restful garden, not restful, right? And it was great, but it was toil, it was work, right? I was working in the soil, I was working. These are, these are things that are not easy to do. I was sweating because it was like 60 degrees. <laughs> and Ellie was like restfully drinking iced tea and taking pictures of her phone from the inside the house because that was restful. She came outside. But, but, but would that qualify? No, that's not rest. But, but, but real rest is what is really rest to us. That when God tells us to, to have rest in our life on Sabbath, he's talking about that kind of rest you get when you're deeply, deeply asleep. It's called REM sleep. We, we basically nap our way through the week. We just get enough rest to get on to the next day and then keep going and keep going. But we need a point when we stop and we really get deep sleep, deep rest. And he says, then you need a day for that. And that day needs to be spent with me because real rest in life can only be found in me because I'm your source of life. You can't divorce me of it. Were these Pharisees experts on that rest? No. They were experts on control. One of the things that we learn by watching the Pharisees is that Jesus is a figure who causes everyone he comes into contact with to reevaluate things. For the religious leaders, they see him doing something they don't like. They have to reevaluate things. They have to go, who's wrong, him or us? And believe it or not, religious leaders aren't very good at reevaluating things. They're not very good at reevaluating themselves. 
They believe that in order to be faithful to Scripture, they're never allowed to look again at themselves and say, but am I doing this wrong? And so they're only willing to reevaluate Jesus again and again and again. And they're upset that he's putting himself on the same level as God. They're upset that he's breaking what they think is the Sabbath, even though Jesus clearly explains to them, no, I'm not doing exactly what my father's called me to do. Jesus is claiming to do something that is completely offensive to the religious people at the time. He is claiming to be able to forgive sins. If anyone knows that you can't get rid of and erase and forget about sins, it's the religious people that spend all their time keeping track of sins and obsessing over sins. But Jesus himself says, I forgive sins. I bring real life. I save you from real death. I deliver you from real sickness. I deliver you from real, true disability. If we read this and we walk away thinking that Jesus will heal those who are faithful, those who are true disciples will get physically, will be healed all the time. That if we have enough faith that he'll get involved, he'll listen up, he'll hear us, and he'll go, okay, fine, I'm going to act, then we will be disappointed. We'll feel like we bought a lemon. We'll feel like this isn't what I signed up for because he doesn't seem to be reacting that way in my life, no matter how much I do for him, no matter how much I slave away for him. But if we expect that he will heal our sin, if we have the ability to say again and again and again, when life is outside of our control, when these things happen that are so hard because there's nothing we can do about them and we find ourselves on our knees talking to God, begging and pleading with him, just give me what I want. We all know exactly what that's like. We've all been in that exact place of saying, God, this thing, just give me this thing. Fix it. I know you can. So please do it. And if you don't do it, how can I believe anything other than the fact that you just don't care about me? Because if you can, and if you care about me, how is it okay that this happened? That any of that energy could shift and could go towards saying, God, the real thing that I should be pleading with you and begging with you about is that you would forgive me and that I could be with you. That I could actually have life and not experience the death that comes with sin. That we would plead and beg with him for those things. That we would fear the damage caused by sin as much as we fear these other things. That that would be true in our lives would mean that we're beginning to understand and grasp what it is to truly be a part of the kingdom of God, to truly be a follower of Jesus. He promises us every time that he will forgive, that he will remain faithful. He says, says, when you aren't faithful, When you don't show good faith, I'll still be faithful. That's what he says. That's the promise that he makes to us. We're going to take communion, and we're going to worship. Pastor Matt's going to come up and lead us through communion, and we're going to worship and sing some songs. And as we do that, the reason that we do communion, the reason that we do this every month is because Jesus tells us as often as we can, without it becoming rote, to remember what he did. Why? Because there is no way that any of this stuff could have happened. There's no way that we could actually be delivered from death and from bondage. There's no way that we could stop living as slaves. There's no way that we could have this kind of hope if it wasn't for Jesus dying on the cross. It, people were not given what they were given because of their faith, because of their effort, because of their work, 
because of their intelligence, because of what family they came from, what church they belonged to, all the good things that they did or the track record they have. We're able to be forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so our only right response to that is to praise him for it. And so as we sing, um, we're going to spend some time taking communion and reflecting on that. Let's pray. Father, we are so profoundly grateful for the fact that you, um, that rather than giving us always what we want, that you give us what we need, Lord. That if we knew all of the things that you know, then we would understand how the things that you allow in our lives are ultimately leading to good. But we don't know all the things you know. We don't see all the things that you see. And so it makes it very hard for us to understand why you choose to heal some and not others, why you choose to rescue some and not others, why you choose to be gentle with some and not others. But Lord, you promise the same to each and every one of us to the same degree, that you will respond in our lives, that you will redeem us, Lord, and that you will save us, God, from the greatest danger, the greatest destruction, and greatest death that there is, Lord. We praise you for that. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Father, you have been so generous with us. Our prayer is that we would see what you have done, that we would be grateful, that we would be so overwhelmed with gratefulness that regardless of the circumstances of this life, the trials and suffering and pain that come, that we would have confidence to pray and cry out to you to deliver us, to rescue us, to help us, but that we would always be grateful, Lord. And that regardless of whether you change our circumstances or not, whether you heal or not, that we would still be grateful, God. You are so, so good. We thank you for your goodness, that we have life in you and that that life is everlasting. It's in your name that we pray, amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.